You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.16, Kuru's Brother, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and I have known that this episode was coming for a long, long time. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta and wishing for more creative visions of the future. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 418 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Dom D, Cosmic Crown, and Chasnable. This podcast would not be possible without your support. Another way to support the podcast is to buy us an item from our wish list. We are always adding new things, like research materials, office supplies, and tea, essential for keeping our voices in shape. Especially during these winter months. The link is on our website at gundampodcast.com support. Unfortunately, this week the research took a lot out of me and left me without the time or energy and in entirely the wrong mood to write a radio-free Shangri-La script. So they will take a break this week, but never fear, RFS superfans, those scrappy underdogs will be back next week for more radio-based misadventures. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 18, Haman's Black Shadow, or... Haman no Kuroi Kage. For research this week, we have an uncomfortable but unavoidable subject. And in a departure from our usual format, the research will go between the recap and the discussion part of the episode. We'll have more information about why we decided to organize the episode this way, and a full content warning after Nina's recap. Mindra and Glemmy arrive at an Axis spaceport humming with activity. In his dress uniform and cape, Glemmy takes an elevator directly to the massive, ornate palace, where he meets with Haman. Preparations are underway for the main Axis force to land on Earth. With the Titans destroyed and Ayug weakened and disorganized, this is the time to act. Back at the spaceport, a dummy wedges itself in the ceiling, and Judo emerges. He's hidden his core fighter inside, and leaving it hidden in plain sight among the numerous dummies floating nearby, he makes his way into the colony. In the depths of the palace, a young girl playing in a bubble bath gets a strange feeling in her chest. This girl was the pilot of the mysterious Dark Cubelet, and she realizes that she is in fact sensing the enemy Double Zeta pilot, Judo. Quickly getting dressed, she runs excitedly through the palace, eager to go looking for this fellow new type. Dashing past Glemmy and Lena, Glemmy scolds her not to run, and we finally learn her name, LP Puru. And unheeding, Puru leaves the palace for one of the residential districts. At the same time that Judo is sneaking into the colony, 
Bicha and Mondo are working at the spaceport. They've been tasked with hauling supplies and are being hazed by Axis officers. As they grumble and complain, they conclude that this is even worse than the Argama and wonder how they can go back. Bicha is sure that if they rescue Lena and bring her back with them, all will be forgiven. So they set out to do just that, sneaking off the spaceport by clinging to the back of a car headed into town. Judo finds the residential blocks of Axis, much like the uptown portions of Shangri-La, but built into the asteroid, Axis has no sky, only vast stone ceilings arching overhead. A voice calls out behind him, Oni-chan! And he turns to find a young girl, Puru, staring up at him. She thinks he came for her, and once she's introduced herself, she jumps on him, but he does not recognize her. You've got the wrong person, he says, but Puru stubbornly hangs on and won't let him go. Driving past, Bicha and Mondo see him and remark on how that young man can't possibly be Judo, but sure looks like him. Then the car takes a sharp turn and they are thrown off their perch and into the sidewalk. Meanwhile, Pudu has dragged Judo to a sidewalk cafe where she orders a massive parfait, then sits in Judo's lap and demands that he feed it to her, to his obvious discomfort. Pudu also demands a kiss and Judo stands up, unceremoniously dumping her on the floor. He's fed up with being sidetracked, tells her to quit bothering him and strides away to continue his search for Lena. But he runs back when Pudu declares she might know where his sister is. She climbs up on his shoulders and proceeds to direct him toward the palace. Who should happen to be driving down that same street but Glemmy and Lena? Lena spots her brother and thinking quickly, asks if they can stop at the shop next door. She wants a new dress. It seems they are leaving Axis soon, so Glemmy agrees to take her to stock up on clothes. While he's distracted, thinking about what would look good on Rue, Lena makes a run for it, and runs smack into Bicha and Mondo. The three of them steal a car and drive away, though not before Glemmy spots them, commandeering a passing vehicle so he can keep up the chase. The two cars, hot-rodding down a tree-lined boulevard, zip past Judo and Puru. From the driver's seat, Bicha spots a parked truck carrying a mobile suit and decides they'll use it to escape. But he forgets all about going to the spaceport when he sees a jeep full of Axis officers, the same officers who were hazing him earlier. Out for revenge, he shoots at them and tries to stomp on their car, chasing them when they run away. When Judo and Puru arrive at the palace, Judo is taken aback by the respect the guards show for the small girl perched on his shoulders. Is she some kind of princess? They get all the way to Puru's room without any sign of Lena, and Puru announces she can't sense Lena anymore and may have more luck if she takes a shower. Without waiting for any kind of response from Judo, she goes into the bathroom and starts running the water. Fed up with waiting, Judo leaves Pudu's room to explore on his own but is promptly spotted by patrolling guards and forced to climb out a window to avoid capture. Trying to make his way across the window ledges, he slips and falls onto a balcony covered in vining roses and finds himself face to face with Haman. She trains a handgun on him, demanding to know who he is both of them acutely aware of each other's new type aura. To Judo, Haman's aura looks like a monstrous creature with five red eyes. She is ready to shoot him when a mobile suit crash lands right in front of the building, shaking the entire palace. Haman falls down and Judo runs. The crashed mobile suit is none other than the one piloted by Bicha. He chased the car full of Axis officers to the grounds of the palace itself, 
before losing control of the mobile suit and crash landing outside. The crash knocks Bicha, Mondo, and Lina unconscious, and they lay unmoving in the cockpit. Judo runs right past them, stealing a car and returning to the spaceport to retrieve his core fighter. In space, he hears Pudu call out to him, and the dark cubile flies up alongside. She tells him that his sister is back on the palace grounds, he just missed her, and she grabs hold of the core fighter, wanting to play. Judo gets free, and when she tries to grab him again, the other core fighters, piloted by Ino and Millie, emerge from hiding and provide him with cover. Angry that they are coming between her and Judo, Puru launches the Kubele's bits, her aura flaring. For his part, Judo is horrified that so young a child is a pilot and sternly tells her to stop. His own new type powers seem strong enough to affect her, and she briefly loses control of her mobile suit. In this window, Judo and friends form the Double Zeta, and by the time Puru gets control back, Judo is ready. He is able to destroy most of the bits with fire from his beam rifle. In a temper tantrum, Puru declares that she hates him, that he is a meanie and stupid, and that she's going back to Glemmy. Judo returns to Axis, determined not to leave without Lena. And now Tom's research on L.P. Puru. This week, we have decided to change our usual episode format somewhat by placing the research section first before the discussion in the talkback. The reason we're doing this is that the context revealed in our research on the character L.P. Puru's name so utterly changes our assessment of some crucial parts of the episode that we felt we couldn't discuss the episode without also discussing the implications of the research. We want you to be on the same page as us for that discussion. And the best way to do that is to switch things around just this one time. We also need to give you a content warning again this week. The research and discussion sections of the podcast will both deal extensively with the topic of child pornography. Specifically, the history of simulated, which is to say drawn, child pornography in Japan, and the nexus that connects it to Double Zeta. This issue is unfortunately too big to cover in a single research piece. I have decided to split it into two. This week, I will cover Puru specifically and the context when Double Zeta was made in the 1980s. Next week, I will expand more and talk about sociological, psychological, and legal theories around child pornography and the specific context of drawn child pornography in Japan. This episode introduces us to the Axis new type pilot LP Puru, usually called Puru. Although 10 years old, her behavior seesaws wildly between bouts of childish enthusiasm that seem immature even for her young age, and intimate behaviors, like demanding that Judo kiss her, that are, likewise, inappropriate for a 10-year-old child. This pattern of behavior, alternating between what looks very much like regression and a fixation on age-inappropriate romantic or sexual relationships, suggests that Puru has survived serious trauma, and perhaps sexual abuse. Still, despite these odd swings in her behavior and the discomfort that they can engender in the viewer, her appearance in the episode is largely charming. Her enthusiasm can be infectious, and seeing her running pell-mell like a tiny agent of chaos through the Axis royal palace with its austere statues and preening royal guards is a source of real delight. 
She appears in a bath scene, but the scene lacks the overt sexualization that was present in the bathing scenes for Lila Milarayra or Four in Zeta. Perhaps we could simply say that the nagging sensation of discomfort we get from her character is the product of bizarre writing decisions and the understanding gap that always exists when we look at works from another culture. Perhaps we could say that to the extent Puru means anything, she's meant to be a contrast to Lena. It cannot be coincidence that they're both ten, and that when Judo goes hunting for Lena, he finds Puru, all too eager to call him Big Brother. If her behavior feels inappropriate for her age, maybe we could say that Endo writes girls about as unconvincingly as he writes women, and leave it at that. We might also attribute some of the perception we have of her having been traumatized to her simply being an exceptionally young pilot who apparently has already been trained to kill people by age 10. And a new type or cyber new type. The possibilities for traumatic experiences are manifold. And yet we can't accept any of those answers, at least not as a complete explanation, because there is her name. Although pronounced LP Puru, her name is usually written LPO Ple. Some Gundam media has opted for Puru instead of Ple, but that's a distinction without a difference in this case. The decision to spell her name this way in English, despite its pronunciation, at first seems to be more of the same inexplicable transliteration that turned Mashima into Mashaimra, Kiara into Chara, and Mecha into Madchar. But in this case, the English spelling of her name is actually a nod to the origins of the name. Like the Kubelay, Puru's name was the product of a loan word from a foreign language, in this case English, that was then given a Japanese pronunciation and exported via Gundam back into English. So take her English name as it is officially spelled and move the space from between LPO and PLE to just before the L. Now you have L people. L people, or in Japanese, Eru Pipuru, was the nickname for now-defunct pornographic manga magazine Lemon People. Lemon having been used in Japanese media of the time as something of a signifier for works containing sexual content. The magazine ran from 1982 to 1998, and in the mid-1980s it was at the height of its popularity. You see, Lemon People was the longest-running and arguably the most successful magazine dedicated to publishing pornographic manga depicting young girls. The term in Japanese for this is rorikon, more familiar to English ears as lolikon, and in the 1980s, the manga and anime industry were going through what is commonly described as the lolikon boom. While the term rorikon or lolikon is associated with simulated child porn, especially outside of Japan, it is not in any way limited to that context. Its earliest known usage was to describe Lewis Carroll as a man with an unhealthy fascination for very real young girls. And in Japan today, the term lolikon is used largely the same way pedophile or pedophilia are used in the United States, as a non-clinical, non-legal, and non-technical term for any adult who has a sexual interest in children, real or drawn. Thus, in 2017, when Watsuki Nobuhiro the creator of hugely popular samurai manga series Ruroni Kenshin was arrested for possessing what some sources stated may have been as many as a hundred DVDs containing nude footage of real girls in late elementary and early middle school. Fans in Japan raced to blogs, message boards, and social media to share their dismay, writing posts with titles like 
Ruroni Kenshin no Sakusha Watsuki Nobuhiro Rorikon Taiho, or Ruroni Kenshin creator Watsuki Nobuhiro Lolikon Arrest. There were three exclamation marks at the end there. I don't know if I conveyed that adequately. <laughs> Following a series of incidents where mangaka with work serialized in Weekly Shonen Jump were arrested for possessing child pornography or on other charges related to the sexual abuse of very real children, one comment I found simply said, anyone who reads Shonen Jump is a lolicon. The term lolicon is a Japanese contraction of the English phrase lolita complex, a term for a pedophile who is specifically fixated on pre- or just barely pubescent girls, or more generally, to describe that fixation on very young girls. The phrase is ultimately derived from the famous 1955 novel Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov about a middle-aged man obsessed with a 12-year-old girl, his stepdaughter, whose actual name is Dolores. But its use in Japanese comes via an intermediary, a 1966 book called The Lolita Complex by American Russell Trainer. The book is styled as a serious psychology text and case history, but Trainer had no psychology credentials whatsoever, and he was, in fact, a failed politician, convicted con man, and an author of softcore erotic novels with titles like Jailbait, His Daughter's Friend, and Virgin Myth. I haven't been able to read the Lolita Complex directly, mostly because I don't want to. <laughs> I was going to say, why would you want to? <laughs> but from secondary sources, it appears to describe a phenomenon in which young girls are sexually or romantically attracted to middle-aged men. So, the polar opposite of the thing that Lolita Complex means today. Regardless, the book The Lolita Complex was translated into Japanese in 1969. In the following decade, erotic, sexual, and pornographic art depicting young girls emerged in greater and greater numbers. The new trend was quickly becoming an industry to itself, and it needed a name. After being known briefly as Clarice Syndrome, for reasons that I will explain in a moment, everyone more or less came around to calling it Rorikan. This roughly corresponds with the contemporaneous use of the term Lolita Syndrome to describe a similar multiplication of sexualized depictions of young girls in the United States and Europe, but there is no evidence of a direct linguistic link between the two terms. The emergence of a population of manga and anime consumers roughly 70 or 80% male, with fixations on fictional child characters, usually girls, corresponds to the emergence of the anime maniac set that we now call otaku. In fact, the link is stronger than a mere coincidence of timing. Otaku as a term for obsessive anime and manga lovers was actually coined in an essay published in the pages of Manga Buriko, another pornographic manga magazine specializing in depicting children that was Lemon People's biggest competitor during the early 80s. During the 1970s, fan attention began to focus with increasing fervor on cute and cartoony girl characters, like Pippi from Tomino's 1972 series Triton of the Sea, and Clara from Isao Takahata's Heidi, Girl of the Alps. Perhaps the earliest gathering of men to develop a nascent understanding of themselves as uniquely fascinated with these 2D representations of young girls were the regulars at the cafe Manga Garo. It was these fans, working as amateur manga creators, who produced the first pornographic fanzines with sexual depictions of manga-style children. The earliest known work was Alice, inspired by Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, published in 1978. The following year, the creator of Alice and three other Manga Garo regulars formed a doujin, a circle to work collaboratively on amateur projects, and created the child pornography manga anthology fanzine, Shiberu. 
Shiberu took its name from the English title of the Academy Award-winning 1962 French film Le Dimanche de Vie d'Avre. In English, it was called Sundays and Cybelle, and it tells the story of Pierre, a traumatized war veteran with a childlike mind, who befriends Cybelle, a young girl living in an orphanage. When their friendship is discovered, the authorities in the form of a doctor and the police assume that the young man is a threat to Cybelle. Then, and here is your warning for a 58-year-old spoiler, you should skip ahead about 10 seconds or put your fingers in your ears now, the movie ends with the police killing Pierre in the park while Cybelle naps on a bench nearby. It's easy to see why a group of young men increasingly feeling disconnected to society at large and retreating into a sheltered, semi-real existence where they reject relationships with human women and fixate instead on romantic feelings towards young fictional girls, despite the social opprobrium that that brings them, might feel some kinship with Pierre, as well as a fascination for Cybelle. This actually makes me really angry because I, for one, think it's very sad the degree to which we like prevent and are suspect of men's relationship with kids because uh, I think you know cross-generational relationships are good and healthy and a nice part of society and it's it's sad that we're so suspect. And I've seen manga and anime that do a nice job of depicting relationships between like young adult men and children. Uh, Barakamon is a great example. There's nothing creepy about those relationships. It's really nice. Uh, but these are young men who are making child porn. Yeah, absolutely. There's something ironic about this, that they picked this movie that is all about a, a young man's misunderstood interest in this child girl as a friend, and then they used it as the name of their magazine all about exactly the wrong kind of interest in a child. So now that we've established the name's origin and how angry it makes us, I'm going to follow the convention in English language scholarship and refer to Shiberu as Cybelle. So these four amateur mangaka sold Cybelle at Comiket that year. Comiket is a massive and famous biannual comics market where amateur and hobbyist artists go to sell their creations. We're going to come back to Comiket next week, so keep it in mind. Despite its shocking content, Sibel caught on, and it grew more popular with each subsequent issue. It's an open question whether Sibel's popularity triggered something, or if it merely anticipated the wave that was about to surge. But either way, the early 80s saw parallel explosions in the anime otaku subculture, and what was just about now starting to call itself the Lolicon scene. There was during this period a brief fad for pornographic fanzines focused specifically on the young heroine of Miyazaki Hayao's The Castle of Cagliostro, Clarice. Hence, the brief predominance of the term Clarice Syndrome. That explosion in popularity in the early 1980s carried through the rest of the decade, creating an era sometimes called, quote, the Lolicon Boom, starting with the fanzine Sibel, but really taking off with the launch of the commercial pornographic manga magazine Lemon People in 1982. And remember, that is the same magazine from which Puru takes her name. Sexualized depictions of cute, cartoony, girlish characters were suddenly everywhere. The first pornographic anime made in Japan was a series released in 1984 and 1985 titled Lolita Anime. The second pornographic anime released that same year and made by a different company was also titled Lolita Anime. 
1985, when he was interviewed about what kinds of things he wanted to see from the anime industry in the coming year, legendary Daredevil animator Itano Ichiro responded, I think we should oppose the current Lolita complex boom, adding that he thought it was bad for the industry artistically, bad for society, and bad for the children growing up steeped in media that was obsessed with the sexualization and objectification of fictional children. But he did acknowledge that was where the money was. And he seems to have believed that most animators, rather than actually being personally invested in these ideas, were simply chasing the trend because that was the path of least resistance in that moment. Yuck. Yuck. Itano did not get his wish. In the mid-1980s, including in 1986 when Gundam Double Zeta was made, explicit and softcore simulated child pornography in the Lolicon style was everywhere. And those ideas, tropes, and character types proliferated on the mass market side of the industry as well. Manga creators who got famous making simulated child porn also published their non-erotic manga in the very same major magazines, even in the same issues, as the likes of Tezuka Osamu and Miyazaki Hayao. Lots of companies got in on it. The second of the two Lolita anime pornos that I mentioned earlier was made by Nikatsu, Japan's oldest film studio. A grotesquely gory pornographic video game about stripping and torturing children called Lolita Syndrome was published in 1983 by Enix, the same Enix that later made the Dragon Quest and Star Ocean games, and is today one half of Final Fantasy Studio Square Enix. But this is not to say that Lolicon-styled simulated child pornography was uncontroversial at the time. The Itano quote is just one example showing how lots of people within the industry and throughout Japanese society were deeply leery of what they saw happening in the Lolicon boom. That essay I mentioned earlier, the one that first gave anime maniacs the name otaku, was actually a 1980s version of a call-out post, arguing that it was deeply pathetic for adults to fixate so intensely on fictional characters and reject real relationships with people, especially women, just because they possessed agency. At the time, though, this criticism focused on the fictional part of fictional children, and not on the children part. Concern appears to have swirled around the question of whether the people obsessed with 2D girls would ever be able to form healthy relationships in the real world, whether they would ever be able to handle the needs and desires of a partner, a family, whether they would ever be productive, upstanding members of society. They were viewed as sad, gross, maybe a little pathetic, but not frightening. That changed in 1989. The end of the Lolicon boom came abruptly and horrifically in July 1989, when Miyazaki Tsutomu, no relation to the famous director, was arrested in a park in Tokyo and charged with the gruesome murders of four girls aged four to seven over the course of 1988-1989. When police searched his home, they found thousands of videotapes, including anime, slasher films, and child pornography of both the simulated and real kinds. He was swiftly labeled the otaku murderer. His case spoke to the Japanese public's fear that otaku were losing the ability to distinguish between fiction and reality, and converted that fear almost overnight into a nationwide moral panic. Much of the modern antipathy towards otaku and the negative implications and stereotypes that come to mind when people use that term are direct descendants of this high-profile case. The details, by the way, are significantly worse even than the phrase gruesome murders of four girls aged four to seven implies, and I'm not going to go any further into them than that. If you want to know more, and I strongly caution you that you do not want to know more, 
you can find plenty just by searching for The Otaku Murderer. While 1989 marked the end of the Lolicon boom amid massive public backlash against the trend, it was not the end of simulated child pornography in Japan. Plenty is still being produced today. Japan has long struggled to regulate child pornography of any kind, and although it now has laws against pornography depicting real children, albeit notoriously weak ones, there are still no laws banning or even meaningfully regulating simulated child porn. It was one of the more shocking experiences for me studying abroad there, uh, being in stores that sold figurines, toys, games, comics, uh, and seeing figurines depicting children pornographically just like out on shelves in the middle of a store that sold other not at all pornographic goods. Yeah, when I talk about Lemon People, the magazine, this wasn't like an obscure thing. You could buy it in convenience stores. And I'll talk more about all of that, including the attempts to ban or regulate child pornography next week in part two of this piece. The question of why LP Peru was named after the child porn magazine L People still hangs over this whole research piece. L People stood out at the time for its focus on cute, energetic girl characters, and so we can probably say that 10-year-old Puru has exactly the age, look, and personality of the sort of character who would show up in that magazine. Another possible connection comes from her mobile suit. Last season, we talked about how the Kubale derives its name from the Anatolian mother goddess Kubalea, but another modern version of that goddess's name is Sibel, the name of the young girl from Sundays and Sibel, and the name of the early child porn manga fanzine that precipitated and probably inspired L People. We don't know who on Gundam Double Zeta's staff came up with the name LP Puru, and although the magazine was prominent, we can't know who got the reference and who didn't. We certainly can't know what their intentions were. Is she meant to be a gross in-joke from a pedophile on the staff for pedophiles in the audience? Perhaps a tone-deaf reference to something that just happened to be popular at the moment? A loving homage from a fan of L people? Is she, as Itano's comment suggests she might be, just bait to draw in the lucrative Lolicon market? Or is she part of a larger critique of those people? as embodied in Glemmy, who is probably a pedophile and certainly appears in this episode to be a collector of girl children? Is she one thing in the hands of some writers and another thing in the hands of others? We can't know. We can only work backward from the contents of the show to try to understand what they're telling us. I knew before we watched this episode that Tom was dreading it. He told me he had some unpleasant research to do, but he didn't tell me what. Uh, So I had my first watch through of the episode, not knowing anything about it. Watched the episode and was like, uh, okay, so what's the problem? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Because without that particular piece of context about Pudu, this is a, a fun, enjoyable episode. Yeah, it's a pretty good episode. And I'm not sure that the context ruins it, because as Tom mentioned in his research piece, now in the talkback is when we're going to try to tease apart what we think the show is saying 
about the sort of lolicon trend in anime, if anything. <laughs> yeah, like the thing about Puru's name is that while the episode itself is very good, it has a great energy, the interweaving storylines all work. It feels like a heist movie, the way everything is going in different directions and then coming together and falling apart. Uh, it works. It works really well. It's funny. Um, the action is decently exciting. The characters are all pretty consistent. Um, but Puru's name is a little like if you made a show uh, and you just had a character in it named Adolf Hitler Notzington. Right. Like, like <laughs> that's got to mean something. You just drop it, it in the middle. <laughs> just drop it in the middle of your story. Uh, so let's start by talking about Purdue, and then we can talk about other aspects of the episode. Mm -hmm. It's very clear in the episode that she behaves in some age-inappropriate ways. That's not a question. And we get that from Judo's response to her more than anything else. Judo and Glemmy, I guess, both respond to Puru's inappropriateness um, in what I feel like are appropriate ways. Uh, Judo is like, whoa, no, do not. I am not going to kiss you. Do not lick things off of my face. What are you doing? It's weird that you are sitting in my lap. All of this is weird, and I don't know how to handle it. And the, the temper tantrum once she's in the Cuba lay. I hate when people are mad at me. Judo, you meanie. I hate you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the running around half-clothed and like... Yeah, all of which is uh, a, a stark contrast to Lena, who is the same age, but um, much more mature and stable. Right. I mean, my two thoughts on that during the episode in that first watch through were one, Lena has had to take care of herself. Presumably, Pudu has been in, uh, for want of a better term, institutions her whole life. Mm -hmm. Lord knows where Axis found her, but they've been keeping her and training her and using her as a pilot for we don't even know how long. And so she's always been in settings where she is in some ways uh, sheltered, taken care of in a like very regulated environment. Mm -hmm. At the same time, often age inappropriate behaviors crop up when someone uh, has experienced trauma and certainly being forced to be a child soldier would be a traumatic experience. We don't have any indication yet whether she understands that she is potentially killing people, but uh, she doesn't seem at all bothered by piloting or uh, attacking other people. Initially, she describes this with Judo as like playing with him. You know, when she captures his core fighter, she asks him to play with her. And so maybe for her, the fighting is just kind of a game. But then she also lashes out, right? She's not interpreting attacking his companions with the bits or attacking him with the bits as playing. Whether she wanted Judo to go back to Axis with her or to play out in space with her, I think she does understand that there's some difference. To me, it seemed like what caused her to sort of have that tantrum was not a switch from playing a game to fighting, but rather that the game was not going the way she wanted it to. Judo was not letting her do whatever she wanted. Uh, Judo destroyed her bits and sort of ruined the game for her. And that's why she gets so angry. And she runs back to Axis crying and saying, I'll get Glemmy to console me. She hasn't actually killed anybody on screen yet, so... We don't know exactly what her background is, what traumas she has endured. Certainly, her uh, situation right now in the Axis Palace makes her seem quite spoiled. She has this lavish bathroom overflowing with character goods. 
the one that stood out to me is there's a frog that to me looked very much like the Sanrio character Kuropi, who was my favorite growing <laughs> up. Uh, but I looked it up and Kuropi didn't come out until a year or two after this episode of Double Zeta aired. Could Kuropi have been stolen from Double Zeta? Could someone who worked on Double Zeta also have been designing character goods? Or how many different variations on frog with big eyes can you really come up with? And that very specific way that they draw the mouth. If you say so. I I think it looks very similar. I believe you. I just don't know what Kuropi looks like. Y'all will have to chime in about this. Is that frog Kuropi or is it not Kuropi? Don't sick listeners on me. <laughs> But yeah, she has all of these different character goods in her bath. The bath itself is lavish. Um, She has like fancy crystal bottles of soap and shampoo or whatever. Uh, And she's got the run of this palace. She can run around doing whatever. And the uh, palace guards are obliged to salute when she goes by. So, you know, Judo thinks she's the princess of the palace. And she says that's not quite right. But she's clearly both traumatized, but also spoiled. And whatever parenting she's getting from Glemmy, I guess, is uh, clearly not like consistent or even uh, available most of the time. There's something so joyful about her also. Like, I don't know, seeing her freewheeling, arms wide, <laughs> running through the palace, singing her name. I don't know. That just like felt nice to me. Yeah, and yeah. it and it makes me sad to think that maybe it's creepy actually. I don't Yeah. Yeah. I will say I don't feel as though the camera work or the structure of the scenes sexualizes her in a way that I would identify as sexualization. The sorts of uh close-ups and pans across the body that I typically associate with, you know, the male gaze <laughs> in film do not appear. Yeah, it was actually striking for me watching the episode, uh, knowing what I know about Puru's name, how many opportunities they had to sexualize her in some way and how consistently they didn't take them, right? She's got several bath scenes in this episode. Uh, She's got this scene where she's running around partially dressed and like if they had wanted to, they could easily have made those very gross, very explicitly gross. And they didn't. They went instead for childlike innocence. Um, The thing is, to us, that reads as innocent and childlike. But I wonder if to a person who is into the lolicon style of child pornography, those markers of childishness, that innocence might not be like the appeal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that is not a headspace that we can put ourselves in or understand. So I'm going to move on. <laughs> there are a couple of uh, language things that I want to address just really briefly. The referring to oneself in the third person thing that she does where she's like, puru, 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 puru. Uh, that's fairly common in Japanese for children to refer to themselves by their own name. It's like a mark of childishness. Yeah. And I don't know at what age kids generally stop doing it, uh, but it's it's relatively common. Also, and I don't 
really think that they could have translated it differently or it would have been very difficult to translate it differently. Uh, but when she calls Judo Onichan, that doesn't necessarily mean she's calling him big brother. Uh, various familial relationship terms are also used to just like refer to strangers whose names you don't know. A shop clerk addressing a teenage boy or trying to get his attention might call him Onisan. We often see the teens in the show use Ojisan kind of derogatorily, like pops, <laughs> old old guy. <laughs> it's a bit like addressing, you know, someone a bit older than you. It's like auntie. Yeah, you mentioned Ojisan, but Ojisan literally means like uncle. Right. But it's frequently used for an adult man who is definitely not your uncle. Right. Yeah, that a lot of these terms can be used to address people and they don't even necessarily imply closeness. Like it's not even necessarily a term of affection. It's like saying Mr. or young man or excuse me, ma'am, you dropped something like I thought Onichan was only for like a person who was older than you. I would have expected a shopkeep talking to a teenager to be like Shonen. When it's to address someone you don't know all that well, it's not about relative ages. Onisan and Onesan are like teens and very young adults. Whereas like Ojisan, Obasan are adults into middle aged and Ojisan, Obasan is like more elderly. That is a very important linguistic clarification. And I yeah. think in general, you're correct. However, in this episode, I think Puru is actually calling him Onichan because uh, she is trying to like take on a little sister role for him, mm -hmm. right? For Judo's story, Puru's role here is to try to sort of fill in for Lena, to offer him a surrogate sister when he's so desperately looking for his real one. At the end of the episode, Puru very explicitly says, forget about your sister, stay here and play with me. Though that's not her goal all along, because she does earnestly try to help him find Lena earlier in the episode. Well, and she comes out of her second shower telling him, oh, I, I figured out where your sister is. She is earnestly trying to help him. Mm -hmm. He just gets impatient and also doesn't entirely believe that she can help. He has not put together how it is that she knows where Lena is. <laughs> he assumes she's seen Lena somewhere, not that she's sensing Lena. And she has seen Lena at some point, so he's not wrong. I wondered if Puru's heightened new type abilities when she's in the bath or in the shower was meant to be a nod to various experiments on expanding people's minds by putting them in uh, like sensory deprivation chambers, hmm. uh, which are often like tubs of salt water. It could be. I immediately thought of four in the Kilimanjaro episodes because uh, she has the same thing where she's in the bath and that's when she senses Camille coming to infiltrate the base. Same writer. Yeah. So. For Puru, at least, it's much more conscious, right? Puru knows that she senses the stuff better when she's in the bath or the shower. And that's why she takes the second shower. She's like, hmm, I can't find your sister, but maybe I'll be able to if I take a shower. Mm-hmm. Judo in this makes a bunch of mistakes, but it works as an episode because all of the mistakes he makes are perfectly understandable. Any person in the same situation would probably make the same mistakes. His motivations at every stage in the episode make perfect sense. 
And when he runs past the downed mobile suit with Lena lying kind of concussed <laughs> inside, no. and he grabs the uh, heavy lift truck and races away in it, yeah, you 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 stand there and you scream, "No, judo!" But he does exactly what he should do in that circumstance. So a rare congratulations to Endo on writing a good episode. Part of what makes this so surprising is how different it is from the prior episode, because uh, here the humor works. Seeing Judo suffering and being humiliated in various ways while he desperately tries to rescue Lena is a much better look for him. Just a much, much better look for our hero than when he was like strangling Millie in a fit of rage. There are so many really great humorous moments in this episode. Bicha trying to get even with his tormentors by throwing <laughs> apples at them and they just like handily dodge the apples, eat the apples, throw the apple cores back at him. <laughs> We're going to have to talk more about Bicha and Mondo later because I think there's a lot going on with them in this episode, but we'll come back to that in a okay. minute. I mean, the bits with Judo being forced to eat the massive quantities of ice cream and the fact that he looks <laughs> so... Uh, He's got so much trepidation written all over his face when uh, Pudu makes him eat the second ice cream cone. Yeah, he's very expressive in this episode. When he falls into the rose bushes, when he gets shot at. When he uh, dodges Pudu's attempt to kiss him, his banister slide. (laughs) All of this is very endearing for him. It's even an endearing episode for Bicha and Mondo. You can feel for those little scumbags. And they're, you know dawning realization that, oh, that situation that we thought was so bad aboard the Arkema, now that we have more experiences, we realize it was not, in fact, so bad. So Bicha and Mondo, I think, in this episode, continue a trend that we've seen throughout Double Zeta, and that, while not particularly prominent in this episode, would give us at least one possible explanation for why Puru is named the way she is and presented the way she is. And that's that Bicha and Mondo, uh, along with basically everybody under the age of 20, are being taken advantage of by uh, people older than them. And this theme of exploitation, I mean, Moon Moon had it with Roll exploiting uh, Sarasa. It was Sarasa, right? I think she was the prophet who Roll was was manipulating. Um, but it's Judo and his friends aboard the Argama uh, and they also talked about how this was the situation on Shangri-La and how the uh, Junk Dealers Guild abused them. And uh, maybe this is also what they're doing with Puru, that she is a young person being exploited by Glemmy, both as a pilot and, you know, maybe in other grosser ways. Um, and maybe that's the commentary they're trying to make about the magazine L People and the Lolicon thing right? That it's a way for uh, adults to exploit children. Possibly. I would buy that as an explanation. Bichan Mondo, in addition to being some of the main vehicles for comedy in this episode, uh, Bicha's desire to attack the people who bullied him once he gets into the Bawu rather neatly parallels the beginning of Zeta Gundam. When Camille gets into a mobile suit and begins to terrorize uh, the local military police. Yeah, he also uh, sort of stomps at, but not on, the uh, military police officer, Matosh, and shoots his Vulcan guns around him. Although, I think that Camille could have killed Matosh, but didn't want to. 
In this case, I think Bicha absolutely wants to kill these guys and just doesn't have sufficient grasp of the mobile suit to do it. One of the things that is so consistently funny about Bicha is his insistence on piloting mobile suits, even though he is not good at it. And he keeps insisting, oh, but I was better at piloting the petite mobile suits than Judo was. Like, I was always better at the petite mobile suits, but he's so bad at it. We've seen him on Moon Moon. We've seen him here. Like Maybe if they gave him a Gundam instead of all of these shoddy Axis-made mobile suits with their control handles popping off in his hands. Well, clearly it was in need of some repair. It was also missing its cockpit hatch. <laughs> Maybe they were also going to fix the handles. I don't know. If I ever had the opportunity to interview the writers of Double Zeta, or even Tomino, I think my first question would be, what is with the hatches always being off or not working? It crops up so frequently. I have to believe there's something there. I assume it's so that we can have uh, wider shots that still show the pilots. Yeah, probably. And it like it makes the mobile suit less like a human body and more of a machine. Yep, because you can still see the pilot. Yeah, mm-hmm. I I would assume that that's the reason. God, I crack up when Mondo is kicking the engineer off of the mobile suit, and he's like, "Sorry." <laughs> <laughs> Go, man. <laughs> uh, and presumably gravity on Axis is lower. We don't really see that, but it would make sense. And so kicking the engineer off of the like eight meter high cockpit of the mobile suit wouldn't necessarily kill him. There's also something so darkly humorous about Galemi threatening to punish Lena. Like he sounds like he's trying to be her dad. Lena, you come here right now, or you are in so much trouble, young lady. (laughs) Now, I know you really wanted to talk about the interior environment of Axis. This is actually getting at a sort of fundamental discussion about the show. So this could be a long conversation, but this is the first glimpse we've had of Axis in Double Zeta. It all feels very Earth-centric. It has seasons. Well, one season. It has the capability to have four seasons. The palace looks like a European building. It looks like a mashup of a church and a (laughs) castle and a manor house. I don't even know. Mm -hmm. I couldn't tell you exactly what it looks like, but that it looks uh, very fancy and vaguely European, I can say. You know, it's surrounded by manicured lawns and trees and vining roses the city looks like boulevards on Earth would look. The shops look like shops on Earth would look. It all just feels like a copy of Earth from people who ostensibly have broken with Earth and like being separate and want to manage their own affairs, <laughs> but they're just creating this copy of Earth society. Mm-hmm. My question is, is this commentary or is it incidental? Is this purposeful or is it a sign of a lack of imagination or a lack of time in which to conceive of something different? I guess the question is, put differently, who lacks imagination, the creators of the show or the builders of Axis? When I think asteroid habitation, I'm thinking more like what we saw at Solomon or Bawaku, like Warren-like complexes of tunnels and chambers within the asteroid not a vast Earth-like cavern. You would want it to be spacious and airy, 
potentially. Depends on, I guess, population constraints. But if you're not in Earth-style gravity, if there is less gravity, wouldn't that mean that you could get away with uh, much weirder shapes and structures <laughs> that don't necessarily have to obey the same <laughs> engineering rules, the same rules of physics? Absolutely, you uh, could. The old Xeon Capital Palace was... I mean, so creepy looking, but so unique and different and weird. And then to have access just be, you know, Earth 2.0 <laughs> with even better tyrants. Yeah, it's so depressing. Like, given the freedom to design a whole new urban plan from scratch, they just went with the same again. And not even just that the buildings all look the same and it's, there's no sort of innovation artistically, aesthetically, but like, it's it's boulevards with like four lanes and cars. Right. You know, this is a people who have broken from Earth who one would think would have, you know, fairly distinct culture. Part of the reason that they want self-determination is because the lives of space noids are simply different from the lives of Earth noids. And yet they seem to be doing their darndest <laughs> to make it exactly the same. But... The same again, but in space is kind of Gundam's like warning about techno utopianism throughout. Yes, we can go out into space and we can build new human habitations, but Gundam consistently warns us unless we change something fundamental about ourselves, uh, either our like individual personhood, which is what the new type idea is, or about our society in general, which is I think something that people like Shar uh, have kept alluding to throughout the show, then we're just going to recreate the same structures, whether those are physical architectural structures or like social ones, structures of dominance and hierarchy and oppression. And that the inevitable result of that will be the same wars and the same abuses that exist now. Going out into space is not actually a solution to any of our problems. I don't love the new Haman design. Uh, it really feels like the character designers just decided to give all of the women shag haircuts, <laughs> uh, which is boring, and I liked her old hair better. It is, however, significant, I think, that they put her in a, a suit. She is no longer walking around in a military uniform all the time. She is on axis, not the military authority, but the governmental authority, although she's still going into battle. And though we see her in the uh, suit... We also see her like lounging around in a bikini wearing shutter shades of all things. I like that bikini, actually. It's that a good was, bikini. It's yeah. pretty cool. But, you know, just seeing her lounging around enjoying the sun's rays is a new twist on the character that we knew in Zeta Gundam. And we get some glimpses of, uh, let's call it tyranny. Haman herself, I guess, gets to determine what the climate will be. And it's whatever Haman likes all the time. That, of course, reminds us of Shangri-La, which was springtime all the time. We've been told various different reasons for that, but possibly because the system has broken down, possibly because the colony public corporation just can't be bothered to do whatever is necessary to change the season. Uh, and contrasted with Moon Moon, where we are told that they explicitly govern their lives according to the rhythms of the moon. So we have this sense of uh, humans trying to control nature versus humans changing their lives to fit with the way nature flows and changes. 
Haman's mansion is also the only place we see an axis that has sky above it. Not sure if that was a mistake or <laughs> it's meant to be like simulated or what exactly the deal is there. But it is the only place on axis we see that has sky. Well, you can't sunbathe without a pseudo sky. But Judo comments on the lack of sky in the rest of it. Well, he mentions it's all very, at least the, the area that he's in, it feels like the uptown, the sort of wealthier parts of Shangri-La. But the lack of a sky really throws him. Why does Judo tell Haman that he's from the Argama? Politeness? <laughs> I assume that's got to be it. He is a dumb space boy. What did you think of that uh, demon face that gets superimposed over Haman when Judo is like perceiving her with his nascent new type abilities? I really want to know what mythical creature it's meant to be. <laughs> if any, I mean, it could just be, we designed a cool monster. So it's got five eyes. I thought it was four. There's one in the forehead. Okay. Uh, which is a configuration of eyes that is very Buddhist. The um, There's like a litany of qualities that the Buddha possesses. And it's like one this, two that, three these other things, four this thing, five eyes, six thingy thingies. Um, <laughs> what Buddha is this exactly? With the five Buddha, eyes? The Buddha. Five eyes. Yes. Like, <laughs> it's a metaphor. <laughs> so... It could be that. Um, and in that context, five eyes is connected to like uh, extrasensory perception and spiritual power, which definitely fits for Haman and this like new type of moment they're having. Uh, there's also, I know, a mythological Thai monster or deity. I think is supposed to be good luck um, that has five eyes and four ears arranged in that configuration, although we didn't we didn't see the ears on this. Uh, demon face well enough. Yeah, it didn't look humanoid. It looked furry. It looked like a, a creature. But even disconnected from any particular knowable mythological creature, uh, the additional eyes feels very like extra perception, extra power, seeing beyond sight kind of thing. This episode also gives us a few moments of Judo probably unknowingly using his new type powers. He doesn't seem to have any control yet of any kind. Uh, we really only see it happen at moments of intense emotion. You know, when Lena was lost, for instance. And here, his very strong feelings that Pudu should not be piloting a mobile suit. Seems to actually interfere with her, uh, her psycho mood. He's just like broadcasting no on every new type frequency. I wonder if that was supposed to be the actual Nike of Samothrace that's in the palace when Puru is running around. It looks very much like it. And we know that uh, Zeon was not above stealing artifacts from Earth. And that the artists of Gundam, when tasked with, ah, we'll fill this, fill this space with fancy art stuff, uh, frequently copy real world artistic works so yeah there are so many uh pieces of art in the backgrounds of this episode i would love to find an art historian who could go through it frame by frame and try to identify them all i'm not gonna do it but maybe we could find somebody who would Next time on episode 3.17, Time Over. 
we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, episode 19, and is this Haman's combat hair? One Track Mind. Did I call it or what? You called it. Tandem Bicycle. The girls got moves. Lena is tired of being bait. Rue learns to love herself. More child endangerment than usual. She punched it apart. She punched it apart. Ooh. And Bright lives long enough to become the villain. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram, at GundamPodcast, on Facebook, at Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email, at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or, why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, The TV show Pretty Soldier Sailor Moon Moon never caught on in the Universal Century because audiences found Sailor Jupiter's psychic powers, messiah complex, and predatory relationships with women weird and off-putting. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. This week's Wrong Gundam Opinion was inspired by Jace347 in the MSB Discord. Thanks, Jace. And thank you for listening. You know, I'm really glad that the tone we have set for MSB has always been, like, serious with an edge of humor, because it makes it um, possible, I guess, to do pieces like this without creating complete tonal whiplash for our listeners. Yeah, and this is part of why I get confused whenever someone supports us for a while and then decides not to anymore because of content. (laughs) Uh, But I feel like our whole thing is about taking Gundam seriously as a mm-hmm. cultural artifact and that necessitates for the most part treating the topic seriously like we can have fun the show can be funny and we can talk about that but we are like treating the subject matter with seriousness mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's our whole deal yeah yeah <laughs> we never promised that additional context would make you enjoy Gundam more we just promised that there would be additional context I enjoyed our conversation earlier about the fact that, like, we love our patrons, but none of you all pay enough to warrant (laughs) editorial control of what we do. Yeah. (laughs) Now, if you would like to pay enough to get editorial control, we could talk about that. Yeah, we we can negotiate a price for that. (laughs) (laughs) But it will be high. Yes. Well, and in theory, like, if all of our patrons banded together and demanded something specific... We would probably listen to that just because... Uh, no. We would hire the Pinkertons <laughs> to surveil our patrons and break up any attempts at forming a collective bargaining unit. 
I had to fix my angle so your light wasn't in my eyes. Well, I'm sorry. You could tell me to adjust it. I can do that. I have that power. You know. I'm very powerful, but also very irresponsible. Are you a flibberty gibbet? I shouldn't be trusted. <laughs> oh, it was 89 when there was that horrible murder. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's the next paragraph. Just taking a, a moment to collect myself. Yeah. It's a hard thing to talk about. I imagine it's a hard thing to hear. Yeah, whenever we cover stuff like this, I always worry. I'm like, okay, it's clear that we are not okay with this, right? <laughs> I would hope we don't so. Think this is I would hope so. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, some of the additional comments we make. But, mm-hmm. like, part of the problem is we go into, like, research writer mode. And, like, we can't really imbue every single sentence with disgust. He told me he... Ah, subway! Yep, sorry. It's okay. It's not your fault. Do you control the subway? Yes, I'm very powerful, but very irresponsible. And now I'm worrying that I'm not right about that. <laughs> We can always look it up afterwards and edit it out if you're wrong. And if you're right, we can edit out the part where you say that you might be wrong. <laughs> the same wars and the same... Uh, what's another bad thing that will also happen from that? Did you already say oppression? I did already say mm. oppression, so I sort of wrote myself into a trap here. <laughs> talked myself into a corner. But the... Um, the act of lounging seems so uh, alien from the Haman that we knew in fir- uh, first kind of in first Zeta. <laughs> from, 